Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you break open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is a poem by Malcolm Geit called Cuddy. I first heard it last year when Malcolm read it to me in a kind of private reading across a dining room table, and it reduced me to tears. Cuthbertus, says the dark stone up in Durham, where I have come on pilgrimage to pray. But not this great cathedral, nor the solemn weight of Norman masonry we lay upon your bones could hold your soul in prison, free as the cuddy ducks they named for you, loosed by the Lord who died to pay your ransom. You roam the north just as you used to do, always on foot and walking with the poor, breaking the bread of angels in your cave, a sanctuary, a sign, an open door. You follow Christ through keening wind and wave to be and bear with him where all is born, the heart of heaven in your inner farm. I don't know if you noticed in the reading from Genesis the story of creation, the six days of creation, of course, And those six days are six beginnings and endings, or rather, endings and beginnings. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Evening comes first, morning comes second. The six days of creation are, of course, a way of describing the way that God speaks everything into being. There are, unfortunately, folk in the world, aren't there, who want to try and subject the Bible and this story of creation to some kind of scientific analysis, as if science is the God that we worship, and therefore, in order for something to be true, then it has to accord to scientific principle. And so stories are made up to try and fit the biblical account of creation so that it has some kind of scientific credibility, which is nonsense, of course, because science isn't the definition of truth. God's word, God himself, is the definition of truth. And all things are subject to that. It's obvious, really, when you think about it. You can watch a spectacular sunset and know that you have seen beauty. You can look at a dahlia or a daisy, as Jesus says, and you know that you have seen perfection. You can listen to an extraordinary piece of Sibelius or Marla, and know that your soul has been lifted into heavenly places. You can hear the words of a beautifully crafted poem that lifts your spirit 
to somewhere it's not been before, and you have encountered truth. None of this is science, but it carries far more meaning than any scientific platitude ever could. So no, Genesis isn't about six slots of 24 hours. Genesis is about God's abundance of creation. And it's split into two sets of three days. The first is this glorious enigma of the darkness covering the face of the deep with God's spirit hovering across it. And God separating out, as it were, with his hands and his words, light from dark. There's no sun, there's no moon yet. There's just light and dark. And God separates them out. Of course, to God, there's no such thing as light and dark. The psalmist, if you remember, says, Where can I hide from you, O Lord? If I run to the farthest corners of the earth, if I hide in the darkness, even there you will find me. For the darkness to you is not darkness at all, but is light. There is no darkness or light to you. Darkness isn't evil. We use it to hide our works of evil. But in itself, it's as much part of creation as light. So the beginning of time, the beginning of creation is light and dark. The next day, day two, we have this dome created, separating the waters above from the waters beneath. And God calls the dome sky. We might think of it as the water above being the clouds, and the waters beneath being the great oceans, empty and void, like the dark and the light. And then we move on to day three, where the sea now is gathered into one place and the land is brought up. And here on the third day, we encounter the first sign of life, where trees and plants grow out of the land and seed is produced. Did you notice how often the word seed is mentioned? Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed. Fruit trees of every kind on earth that will bear fruit with seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind. And trees of every kind bearing fruit with seed in it. Seed the beginning and the source of life. And then we move on to the second set of three days. Now at last, after the plants have been created, the sun and the moon are placed in the sky to govern the light and the dark. Was this written by people who just hadn't got a clue that the source of our light comes from the sun? Of course not. This is poetry. This is about the creation of all that it means to be. So the sun, the moon and the stars now populate the heavens. The day and the night, the light and the dark, 
So day four is an echo and a population of day one. Now we move on to day five, where the heavens, the sky, and the seas were separated out. And what do we find on day five? But the birds now fill the sky, and the fish fill the sea. So day five is an echo of day two. And then on day six, which is where the land and the vegetables, the plants were created, we find animals being created. And finally, ourselves. Day six being an echo of day three. And then the crowning day of all is the day of rest, the seventh day, the day of holiness, of wholeness, and of completion. And we hear this extraordinary story that the God who has spent these six days making the heavens and the earth and populating with birds and fishes and plants and trees and seed finally decides at the end of it all to make humankind in his own image, male and female, together, man and woman, together, God's image, to govern, to look after, to rule, to have dominion. But what does that mean, to rule and to have dominion? The God who has just created over the last six days has created this extraordinary abundance of joy and delight. Notice that there's no carnivorous creature at all in the beginning. The lions that the Israelites encountered in the wilderness all the time, destroying their animals and their flocks, they knew all about those. But their vision of the beginning was that everything was created in harmony. All that has been created, all this joy and this abundance, the giraffe and the sesame seed, the hippopotamus and the daisy. All of this God made in sheer joy and delight. And then he makes us to populate and inhabit it. The seed is the key because it's a beginning. It's the start of something. It's as it were a painting that's been created and now the colours are there, the palette is there. We're designed to be God's people to paint the drawing, to create this beautiful work of art that God has laid out before us. And God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness and let them have dominion over all that we have delighted in creating. For what purpose? To be the Creator's presence. You remember the story in Genesis 2, how God creates humankind out of the dust 
and then does what? Breathes his breath into the soil. And so the soil becomes enlivened. To use T.S. Eliot's wonderful phrase, we have been created to be significant soil. But what have we done? What have we done? The six days of creation, and we're made at the end of it, do we think creation is there for us to exploit? To do with what we want? Do we make ourselves gods over everything? When we farm, when we buy and sell, when we dig and exploit, when we burn fuels and destroy atmospheres, when we pollute rivers, when we barter and exchange the life of creatures made the same day as us, what do we think we're doing? There's an interesting expression in permaculture. Permaculture is kind of a movement that's trying to find ways of living sustainably with the rest of the creation. And there's a really interesting little phrase that's at the heart of permaculture, which is very simple, and it's just this. Everything gardens. Think about that. Everything gardens. Everything that you do has an impact on the world around you whether it's breathing, where you take oxygen in and let carbon dioxide out that changes the constitution of the atmosphere around you, to brushing your teeth with plastic tubes and plastic toothbrushes that have been made from oil extracted from the ground and then transformed into stuff that we use, to watching television where the electricity comes from a source, the plastic and the glass is made together, the radio waves travel through the air, to walking or driving or eating or shopping. Everything that we do impacts our environment for better or for worse. Everything gardens. And so we come on to Paul's letters to the Romans. We've got to chapter 8 here. And in chapter 8, which is the culmination of the book of Romans, really, Romans is like a kind of a great pyramid. You ascend all the way up from chapter 1 to chapter 8, and you get to the pinnacle, the climax, and then you descend back down. It's like you build up this great argument, you understand at last what it's all about, and then you work out the consequences of it for the rest of the book. And here we are, right at the climax of chapter 8. And what do we discover? We discover that Christ has come to rescue us, but not us. Christ has come to do what? Well, we kind of think that Jesus died on the cross for us, don't we? Jesus didn't die on the cross for us. Jesus died on the cross for all of creation, including us. 
the great Russian theologian Sergei Bulgakov wrote a small book called The Holy Grail. And you'll remember the myth of the Holy Grail. And he actually picks up some of the English uh, folklore about the search for the Holy Grail and the Arthurian legends. The Holy Grail was supposed to be the chalice in which Christ shed the wine with his disciples at the Last Supper. But it was also meant to be the cup that caught the blood flowing from Christ's side when the spear pierced him. And that's what made the Holy Grail particularly special. And so the search went on to find this Holy Grail that held Christ's real blood. Of course, it's nonsense. There isn't such a chalice that caught Christ's blood on the cross. No. Bulgakov recognises that, of course, and says, but actually, what was the holder of Christ's blood? Where did it fall? Fell to the ground. Christ's blood drained into the soil at the foot of the cross. Because, of course, he is of the soil, as we all are. God, man, together in one. And so the whole pinnacle of Paul's letter is about God's redeeming creation, which groans with longing. And Jesus, in his Gospels, speaks of not worrying. Because at the heart of all our transactions, our economic transactions, is worry that we won't have enough, that we'll be cold, that we'll starve. But creation is around us and we will never tame it. We've seen that this week, haven't we? With the earthquake in Syria and Turkey and the devastation that's been wrecked on people. Thousands and thousands killed. No, we don't control creation. We are part of it. Our calling is to be gardeners. Gardeners of kindness. Gardeners of gentleness. Gardeners of respect and honour in everything that we do. And not to worry, but to rest assured that our hope is in the God that made us. And that if we die, which we all will, that's not something to be frightened of. We're never alone. Our God is always with us, and our hope unseen is in him. Amen.